Our lesson this morning will be taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 37. Luke 22, verses 31 through 37. Subject is what our Lord said to His disciples about things concerning Him have an end. Let's read these verses together. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Now this this is taking place after the little strike they had over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God, who was going to hold the highest office and so on. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. I, I like this verse, I want you to think of it just a little while. They they were just arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and the Lord said, when you're converted. <laughs> you, you're not even converted yet. But when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked you anything? And they said nothing. Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Now here's my subject this morning, things with an end. Jesus of Nazareth was not just another son of Adam. He was a man. He was ever with a man. If you looked at him, you couldn't tell him from any other man. He robed himself, took union to himself, human flesh and a soul. He was, but he was not just another son of Adam. Adam's posterity are many. They're many. And they're varied in talents and skills. Some merely manifest one-of-a-kind skills. Some are, have made their mark in this world as, as nearly a one-of-a-kind. Now, what are you talking about? Now, I'm talking about people like Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That's what I'm talking about. Huh? He wasn't an average man, was he? Leonardo da Vinci. Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, and the list goes on and on. But brilliant as these men were, they were all fallen sons of Adam. They all inherited the nature, the fallen nature, 
and the curse of Adam. And none of these men knew God in a saving way. None of them. Jesus of Nazareth stood out among men who were more than willing to accredit him as a great humanitarian. They often addressed him, good master, because he was good. He was he none good but God, but he was good. He was God. And his goodness was obvious to me. They were willing to accredit him as a great humanitarian and a great teacher. He could teach. I struggle with natural things, trying to take natural things and, and, and apply them spiritually. I, I, I struggle trying to, to get across to you what I believe the Scriptures are teaching. It, it's, it's hard. It's not easy. You have to sit and think and, and, and pray and, and ask God to give you... But He was a teacher. He's the creator of all things and everything that he created was not only by him, but it was for him. And he could take those things and apply those things. And anything that he uses, I know that's that's why that was made. That's why that even has a being. That's why it has a place in creation. He was not the son of Adam. He was the second Adam. He was the second Adam. He was the Son of God and the promised Son of Man. And from what I've read, His own disciples thought of Him this way as the Christ. He was the promised Messiah. They saw that in the Scriptures. They believed Him to be the promised Messiah. But their ideas of the promised Messiah, the Christ, were tainted by their own traditional understanding. They thought of the Christ as a man with an earthly kingdom. He was going to be a man like David, a special man, a one-of-a-kind man. He's going to be just like David, and the Lord was going to anoint him, and the Lord was going to raise him up and use him and influence that nation and call that nation together. And he was going to bless them like he did before, and they was going to regain worldly renown. And he was going to establish a glorious earthly kingdom just like he did under Solomon. He'd rule over a nation called Israelites. And such ideas is what fed this little strife that they had about who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. Now Peter had already confessed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he came forth from God, and as such would redeem Israel and restore them again to earthly glory and honor. He believed these things. And concerning their ignorance, our Lord says what he says in these verses, telling them that the things concerning himself have an end. What does that word end mean? Well, let me give you all the meanings. It means a finish, a close, a resolution, a final culmination. It means a purpose. To have an end means it has a purpose. It has an objective. It has a target. It has an intention, a design. And it means a conclusion, a closing, a, 
a discontinuation. Christ is the end of the law. That is, he's the goal of it, the object of it, and so on. But it also means a discontinuation of it. He, he honored the law, exalted the law, and brings it to an end. The things concerning me, he says, have an end. Well, what things? What things concerning him? Well, let me give you just as many as time will allow. First of all, he's talking about the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures. He says in verse 37, I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, 12 that he's quoting. These, these things, the Scriptures concerning me have an end. They have an end. In Acts 10, verse 43, having the, uh, been anointed by the Spirit, these apostles now understood what he was saying back there. And with that understanding, they said, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sin. This is why they were written. Revelation 19.10 said, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what they, that, the spirit of prophecy is Christ. If you would understand the writings of the prophets, you're going to have to, to know Christ. Because that's what they're talking about. And even the prophets themselves, it said, searched what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. To whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. Everything written and promised in Him must be accomplished in Him. Has to be. They have an end. That's what He's telling them. This, this is not going to be a thing settled. I'm not going to come down here and establish a kingdom and sit on the throne and that's going to be it. They have an end. They have a purpose. They have a target. A goal. Election would be of little value if the one we were chosen in did not accomplish our redemption. The, the, basically, that's what the Jews wound up with. They believed in election, but they didn't believe in the Christ that would accomplish that, uh, all the things that that election promised. And our accomplished redemption would be of no value without the effectual calling and application of the Holy Ghost. What good would it do if you didn't believe it? Everything concerning Him and the Holy Scriptures must be accomplished in Him, and they all have an end. And then secondly, the apostles themselves have an end. The things concerning me have an end. These apostles were concerning Him. Not the other way around. It was concerning Him. In verses 28 through 30, the Lord tells His apostles that they would sit upon twelve thrones 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They would, he says, eat and drink at my table in my kingdom while all this is taking place. And this is another one of those things concerning Christ that must be accomplished. We're told in Ephesians 2 verse 20 that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. These men are ruling over spiritual Israel as they are the very foundation of our faith. He appointed unto them thrones in a sense that, that they were inspired of God. One of a kind men inspired every word that they wrote inspired of God. So that we can look at that book and call it the Word of God. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. All of them. And there's no other source of revelation concerning Christ than the Word of God. And the Word of God alone is profitable, the scripture said, for reproof. Would you reprove somebody? Then don't tell them what you think. Tell them what God said. That's where we get into trouble. Well, I think what you need to do, <laughs> just leave it out. Just leave it out. Now, here's what God said. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be truly furnished unto all good works. Well, what about preaching? Well, here's Paul's... Um, Charge to every preacher. Preach the word. And now what he says? Don't preach your feelings. Don't even preach your experiences. Preach the word. Study. Study what? Study the word of God. Study to show thyself approved of God, a workman worthy of his meat. Able to do what? Rightly divide the word of God. The word judge here is in its widest use. And it is by the inspired words of the apostles that Israel shall receive their discernment. But in this word judge here, it contains both a legal judgment and a spiritual discernment. Paul writes to the Hebrews and he tells them that the word of God is able to divide asunder soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. They were appointed to this end and their ministry and office is still effectual today. The things concerning me, he says, has an end. There's a reason why I chose you twelve. There's a reason. There's a purpose. And then thirdly, another thing concerning Christ that has a divine end is His appearance in this world. Jesus of Nazareth came into this world as a representative man. He wasn't here on His own. He wasn't just here to show off His attributes as God. He could have done that from heaven. He didn't have to become a man to do that. Every spiritual blessing given to chosen sinners is according as God has chosen us in His Son, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And a full and complete provision was given to us in Him.
What provision? Verse 4, Ephesians chapter 1. He gives us three things. That we should be holy. Holy. Consistent with the wholeness of the character of God. No compromise of the character of God. And under all conditions and in every uh, circumstance, holy. Consistently, constantly holy. When God said that they might be holy, He wasn't talking about they were going to reach a plateau of holiness. He's talking about from that from that time, whatever time that was, from all eternity, every, every how you want to look at it, when God chose us and put us in His Son, we were holy. He never saw us. He never sees us in any other way. We're holy. That they might be holy and without blame. Why? Without blame. Think about it. Oh, my soul. So consistent in Him with this holiness. And, and what about the sinner? Well, there's no way outside of a representative man that you and I could call ourselves holy. And you know what the Lord said about holiness? He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. How can you be holy if you're in Him? That's, that's it. There ain't no other way. The only thing we're consistent in is sin. But the salvation of sinners is consistent with the character of God. Now, let me tell you something about this. As holiness stands as a wall to block the way of unholy men, it stands as a wall. You have to be holy. There's no way you can have fellowship with God and be unholy. You have to be holy. But as that holiness stands as a wall to seal out all unholiness, it also stands as the basis of our acceptance with God. Huh? Why would God have anything to do with me? I'm holy. <laughs> you ain't no such thing. I am in Christ. I am in Him. You know what He says to those who enter into glory? I don't know if these are the first words we'll hear or what, but it's the only words I know of where He says anything to the believer as He enters into glory. But here's what He says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. He's holy. Isn't He? Well done. You can't look yourself in the mirror and say that. But that's what God says of the sinners that He saved by His grace. He chose us in Christ that we should be holy and therefore He tells us in Ephesians 1.6 that to the praise of the glory of His grace He made us accepted in the Beloved. And in beloved, we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now listen, a holy nation. A peculiar people. And what does our presence there show? It shows forth the praises of Him who hath called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what He does. And then He says, without blame. 
examined before the high court of God who sees all. Examined by Him before whom all things are open and naked, nothing hidden. Examined under the worst conditions, the most fearful trials, the most powerful temptations, and found perfectly just. That's what it means to be justified. It means to be looked at with all-seeing eyes, and He can't even find a reason to reprove you. Unreprovable, isn't that what Christ said? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified and Christ that died. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. We're holy in Christ. We're righteous in Christ. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He says the things concerning me have an end. They're not just an attempt to save, not just a good effort to give man a second chance. Men and women aren't saved by chance. God saves them on purpose. And they're saved by the sovereign purpose and will of God. And if God gave you a thousand chances to start over, you'd fail and fall every time. That's why He took a perfect man in the beginning and if a perfect man in a perfect environment will fall, what, where's the chance? I don't get the chance people talk about. And then the third thing he tells us about being holy in Christ is that we should be before him in love. That means being loved always, always. You, you can't love yourself that way. Huh? How many times have you bowed your head in prayer and just, David said, I, I hate myself. <laughs> that don't sound like love to me. You can't even love yourself. But I tell you, whom God loves, He loves from the beginning and He loves always. He never stops loving you in Christ. In Christ. I in them, he prays, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And to accomplish these things, he must take to himself a body and a soul of a man and do for them what they could never do for themselves. He must be reckoned among the transgressors to accomplish the end or reason for his coming. And then here's the fourth thing he gives as an end concerning him and his accomplished redemption. The day of miracles and the ushering in of the gospel age. They have an end. They have an end. Our Lord's person and work was confirmed of God by miracles and wonders and signs. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, which you yourselves also know. You stood right there and watched him call Lazarus out of the tomb. You stood right there and watched him cleanse the lepers, cast the demons out. Oh, we didn't see that. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did, because you said he cast out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. You watched it. You saw it with your own eyes. God confirmed his son. 
And he concerned his, uh, he confirmed his apostles in the same way. Read about Hebrews chapter 2. God confirming them also with miracles and wonders and signs and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his will. And he tells them that he sent them out. He said, I sent you out without purse or script or shoes, and you didn't lack anything. But now, he said, I, t- I say to you that he that hath a purse, take it with him, and take your script, and take your shoes, and if you ain't got a sword, sell whatever garment you can do with that, and buy one. Why? Because the days of miracle are drawing to an end. Drawing to an end. You and I don't need to see these extraordinary things. We have the Word of God. It's complete. It's ratified of God. It's stamped with the seal of the Holy Ghost. And we're to take what things God has graciously given us and use them in service to Him. I don't sit around waiting on God to give me a basket with three fishes in it and then praying that He'll feed the 5,000. I take what I've been given and I use them in service to Him. He's already He's already put His stamp on these things. You can debate and argue about it all you want to. These things are set. They're set. And he that denies these things, John said, he makes God a liar. It makes God a liar. We're to take what God has graciously given us and use it the best we can in service to Him. And then lastly, His present state had an end. While here on this earth was our Savior, our substitute and Redeemer, He lived and ministered in a state of humility and servitude. Being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. I tell you, when I read that, I just, I don't know what to do with that. Being God being found in fashion as a man, that looks to me like that's the epitome of humility. But it says being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He went further than that. He wasn't a top man, he become a servant. He become least. He become the one kneeling down with a towel to wash their feet. He become the servant that broke the bread and handed it to you and said, "Eat this. This is from God. Drink this." Spend his hours all day, every day, in boats and on the bank and on the sides of mountains, teaching and preaching. Oh, he took on him the form of a servant. But having accomplished what he was sent to do, God raised him from the dead, carried him back up to glory, and gave him a name above every name. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus that you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Huh? There was a day of humility. But that ain't today. Today He reigns in glory. He reigns in glory. And when He comes back, He ain't coming back 
in a cow stable. He's coming back in all the glory of his father's house. That humble, soft-spoken, gracious man sits on the throne of God, sits at his right hand, ordering all things, arranging all things. The things concerning me have an end. His sojourn on this earth, his ministry, his miracles, his life and his death, the whole of the Word of God, his resurrection, his intercession, and his reign in Zion. These things have an end. And oh, great God in heaven, give to us the mind of Christ that we might understand these things and apply these things hourly as we live in every situation. Be made aware Without him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. Oh, thank you.